Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And today we're going to look at some of the fallout from the Ukraine war. So as Russian forces are bogged down against fierce Ukrainian resistance, the war's taking a huge toll on Ukraine itself. The death toll's rising, cities are getting pummeled by Russia, more than 3 million people have fled the country. The war has big implications for European security, has big implications for relations between Moscow and Western capitals. But it's reverberating further afield too. And we're going to talk about two crises where the Ukraine war already appears to have had knock-on effects. Negotiators are closing in on the terms to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. However, Russian officials overseeing the negotiations are hampering the talks. They claim the West sanctions on Moscow are creating problems. After a lot of stalling last year, talks over Iran's nuclear program finally appeared to be making some progress. Last week, however, the parties, the US, Iran, the so-called European Three or E3, so France, UK and Germany, plus Russia and China, suspended talks in Vienna, seemingly because Russia had new demands related to the sanctions that Western governments have imposed in response to the Ukraine war. In Venezuela, Ukraine's brought perhaps an even more surprising shift. As the White House continues to navigate the rising cost of gas Americans are now experiencing as a result of the war overseas, there are rumblings that the Biden administration is possibly cozying up with another authoritarian, Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro. In early March, U.S. diplomats met at the most senior level in years, officials from the government of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. It's all the more startling because officially Washington recognizes a Maduro rival as Venezuela's legitimate president. On the agenda appear to have been hostage releases, but officials may also have discussed whether the US would be open to easing sanctions to get Venezuelan oil onto global markets, and whether it could potentially rekindle talks between Maduro and the opposition. So today we're going to talk about first what the Ukraine war means for the Iran nuclear talks, could it scupper them? And we're also going to talk about whether it offers any hope of reviving US-Venezuela relations or even Venezuelan peace talks. So we're going to start with Iran, and I'm very happy to be joined by Nathan Rafati, Crisis Group Senior Iran Analyst. Nathan, welcome on. Thanks, Richard. Great to be with you. 
So could you give an overview of of what's been happening over the past uh, week or so? Things were looking much better than they had been. It seemed like a, a deal was sort of nearing completion. And then the Russians seem to have come with these extra set of demands. Could you sort of run through how things have progressed over the last week or so? Sure. Well, uh, this entire negotiation process has been uh, one where we see one step forward and then another step back. It's been a very non-linear uh, set of discussions, but very intense ones over the past couple of weeks. Um, towards the end of February and early March, it looked like one of the issues that would make or break the discussions was um, an IAEA safeguards probe. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency has been conducting uh, a long-running investigation into uh, past Iranian activities at undeclared sites. Um, the Iranians had uh, been wanting that probe to be shelved as part of the JCPOA negotiations. The US, the E3, and even the Russians and Chinese said that that was a, a, a political decision that they wouldn't make. The IAEA's mandate is nuclear accounting, and if they had uh, queries um, of Iran, they would have to be answered. And so on the, the 5th of March, um, the IAEA's director general, Rafael Grossi, went to Tehran, and he came away with a framework for Iran to uh, provide written clarifications to the agency and for this process to play out over the next few months. And that seemed as though it had resolved one of the major hurdles, one of the major sticking points um, that, that uh, had been going on in Vienna. But the same day as Grossi was in Tehran, the 5th of March, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, publicly put out um, a fairly uh, sweeping set of uh, Russian uh, demands on sanctions assurances from the U.S. And, and, and he said, you know, in writing from the Secretary of, of State of the United States, we want assurances that the Ukraine-related sanctions uh, won't impact uh, full trade, investment, military and technical cooperation between Russia and Iran. In other words, it was sort of a loophole on these very heavy sanctions packages that have been put in place by the US and by the Europeans on Russia since the invasion of Ukraine started. Basically, according to this initial set of demands, there'd be a carve out for all trade with Iran. Or that was the implication. That certainly seemed like the implication, essentially a sanctions cordon sanitaire between between Russia and Iran. And the immediate response from the US and the Europeans was that this is immaterial to the JCPOA-related discussions. The Ukraine sanctions have no bearing on either the, the non-proliferation side of the JCPOA or the economic dividends that Iran is um, supposed to anticipate under the nuclear deal. And they essentially said this is a non-starter. And uh, later that week, um, the EU uh, high representative, the EU is basically coordinating, facilitating the JCPOA talks, said that the talks have to go on pause, uh, citing, quote, uh, external factors. And so the sense was that that really these these new Russian demands had had come in kind of as the the opposite of a deus ex machina, a diablo ex machina, if you will, um, in, in the middle of these uh, negotiations and, and what had been up to then a degree of compartmentalization um, of JCPOA negotiations from the wider Ukraine context had suddenly uh, fallen apart. And it looked like it was um, something that could potentially scupper uh, the negotiations. Now, um, more recently, the Iranian foreign minister has been in Moscow and uh, the Russians seem to have shifted from that fairly maximalist set of requirements on sanctions assurances to a more narrow set of nuclear-specific waivers, which are actually part and parcel of the JCPOA. 
So could you just unpack that a little bit further? So the, the JCPOA uh, includes a role for Russia in uh, both storing some of Iran's what would be surplus nuclear materials, but also in helping Iran with a non-weaponized nuclear program. And it's those aspects of Russia's trade or relations with Iran that would then be carved out of the, the Ukraine sanctions. That's right. So the Russians have a, have a procedural role in the JCPOA and a practical role in the JCPOA. The procedural role is that as one of the original P5 plus one countries that was involved in negotiating the agreement, they're part of the, the joint commission. The joint commission is basically the, the body that oversees JCPOA implementation. So uh, one of the problems um, with, these, with these new demands was that anything uh, that's passed by the joint commission, including a potential statement on reviving the deal, is done by consensus. So if you don't have the Russians on board, either you bypass them or you don't have uh, consensus. It's one of those two options. The practical side of it is that um, on the one hand, the JCPOA has, an, has a couple of civil cooperation projects um, that are part and parcel of it. So th these involve um, the Chinese, the Brits, and in a couple of operations, uh, the Russians. The Russians are involved at the Fordo facility, converting it to a research site. They're also involved at the Tehran research reactor. And as you said, they would potentially play a role in shipping out Iran's excess uh, uranium stockpile. So when the JCPOA was agreed in 2015, Iran had to ship out about 11 tons of uh, enriched uranium that went beyond the JCPOA's 300 kilogram cap. And so that's, again, a solution that, that would be considered right now for Iran to come back again from where it is with a couple of tons of enriched stockpile uh, that go beyond the JCPOA's limits. Uh, and, and Russia, again, playing uh, a redux of that role as the recipient of these uh, uh, surplus supplies. So those are two ways um, in terms of civil cooperation projects and the, the more immediate uh, outflow of, of Iranian stockpiles. Uh, where the Russians have a direct role in implementing non-proliferation um, uh, instruments that are part of the deal. And for that, um, there would presumably have to be uh, sanctions waivers in place. I, I think the U.S. Has, has intimated that things that are part of the JCPOA, by definition, cannot be inconsistent with the JCPOA when it comes to sanctions lifting. So if the demands are uh, narrowly framed on those issues, it, it shouldn't be a problem. What would be a problem is a much wider carve out where potentially sanctioned Russian entities would engage in uh, trade with Iranian entities. And what gives you the sense that, in fact, uh, it's the smaller carve out that Russia seems to be leaning towards now? Is that the sense? In which case, presumably, then things are looking much better than they did on the 5th of March. Well, I think you're right that uh, relative to where we were on the 5th of March, it looks like one uh, potential hurdle has been uh, lifted. Um, the point I'd emphasize is that, that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's smooth sailing from here. The, the issue of the IEA probe uh, and the Russian sanctions demands are uh, elements that have certainly complicated things, but the, the core issues really come down to Iran and the U.S., and they've been some of the core issues that we've had throughout the uh, 11 or so months of negotiations. Uh, the steps that Iran needs to take to bring its nuclear program back into compliance and the sanctions relief that the U.S. is willing to put on the table. Especially on the latter question, there are still um, areas of disagreement over the exact uh, nature and sequencing of uh, U.S. sanctions relief. The Iranians are, are, are still asking more. 
uh, for more than what the, the U.S. has up to this point uh, entertained. So um, certainly this looks like um, one, one landmine that's been navigated, but um, I think it's a bit premature to say that suddenly you know, everything's fallen into place. If anything, we've seen over the last few weeks that just, I think, as you said rightly at the beginning, when you see positive momentum building up, and, um, you know, gaps narrowing, uh, things keep coming up that, uh, you know, keep us from crossing those those final yards. And we'll talk in a moment about the US-Iran dynamics and exactly as you say, the sort of sequencing and the exchange between sanctions relief and Tehran getting its nuclear program back into something like compliance with the JCPOA. But before we do that, Nathan, could you just talk a little bit about kind of what Russia's interests in the deal are because until now, really until the Ukraine war, despite really, you know, even before the Ukraine war, pretty terrible relations between the US and Russia, Russia has been, from what I understand, reasonably constructive with the JCPOA talks. Um, they've managed generally to compartmentalize the, the all the friction with the West. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about some of Moscow's calculations when it comes to the sort of Iran's nuclear program and, and, uh, and the talks? Sure. And I think you're right that over the past few months, um, there was a sense that the Russians um, had been able to compartmentalize their differences with Washington on a, on a whole range of issues. I think you could actually say the same for the Chinese as well. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there is uh, for Moscow a nonproliferation interest. Uh, they obviously don't want uh, Iran to be um, on the on a nuclear threshold. Um, they also don't want uh, the nuclear crisis to escalate to a point where the U.S. or some of its regional allies would would have to consider military action uh, against Iran. So neither of those uh, extremes of an Iranian bomb or Iran being bombed are are viewed favorably in Moscow. Um, at the same time, there are some other interests, and I think that um, the Ukraine war has uh, amplified it and perhaps fed into to, to the timing of of uh, Russia uh, coming in with these new demands. On the one hand. Um, if the deal is restored, um, a rival uh, oil producer to Russia would come back um, on the market. You'd get something like a million to a million and a half barrels of Iranian oil uh, being added to global supplies over the next few months. And um, that's not necessarily in uh, Russia's interest when it's a competing uh, oil exporter. The other thing is that, uh, you know, in a certain sense, while uh, the U.S. and the Europeans are uh, focused so much uh, on uh, addressing the, the war in Ukraine and uh, addressing Russia through sanctions, etc. This is essentially taking one major item off of their to-do list. Um, you know, the, the, um, the concern in uh, the U.S. over where Iran's nuclear program is um, is significant. The concern among the Europeans over where Iran's nuclear program is, is significant. And so um, resolving this benefits, you know, Western uh, strategic interests more than it would Russian security interests. And, and therefore, you can see that these kind of uh, dueling imperatives of, on the one hand, uh, helping contain a non-proliferation crisis, but on the other hand, actually, to some extent, detrimining Russia's own interests have, have been um, playing out. Now, the, the response from the Americans and, and from the Europeans to these Russian demands was very quick and, and quite unequivocal that, that this was a non-starter. 
Um, so whether or not it was a, it was a tactical gambit to see what they could get, whether it was an effort to delay, whether it was an attempt to torpedo the talks entirely, um, that, that all is, is up to the Kremlinologists rather than me. Um, but you, you can certainly see why, um, uh, a restored deal is, uh, beneficial to, to Russia in, in some respects, but especially in the current environment actually has, uh, knock-on effects that are not so good, uh, in terms of its own strategic posture. What about Iran itself? I mean, initially when President Raisi came to power, there was sort of some question about how much his new government really wanted to get back to the deal. But it seems now that, you know, at least at, at the leadership level that they seem to have decided that, you know, a deal in some form benefits Iran's strategic interests. Clearly, Russia doesn't want to antagonize Iran too much while it's antagonizing so many other countries. Um, so could that also sort of play some role in uh, shifting Moscow's calculations? Well, I think you're right that uh, when the Raisi uh, administration took office, there there were questions over um, the, how, how and and even whether they would they would pursue these talks. Right? We had a five month hiatus, uh, essentially, in these negotiations in the middle of last year, and when the new Raisi team uh, team came in for the for the seventh round of negotiations, so the first round on their watch, it was a very difficult. Uh, set of negotiations. And, and our understanding was that even the, the Russians and the Chinese, who were somewhat more sympathetic to the Iranian position, uh, were caught off guard by just how maximalist some of these demands were. The Iranian team came into those negotiations saying they weren't even going to talk about nuclear steps. They only wanted to talk about sanction steps. And so it seems as though um, that notion has been disabused quite quickly. The last a um, couple of months, I mean, really this round that's been going on since December has been uh, considerably more uh, workmanlike and, and serious. Um, I think the, the Iranian team, um, even though it's, it's staffed by many people who are extremely critical of the deal, uh, also recognize that Iran's economy does uh, need a, a degree of normalization if it's going to have any long-term uh, stability. Now, when it came to um, the, the the Ukraine-related um, uh, sanctions and the Russian demands, um, it's not entirely clear to me at all if the Iranians knew about this in advance. Uh, they initially seemed to be as caught off guard as anyone and were, were seeking clarifications of their own. And um, a lot of the, the, the public posturing on the Iranian side was a, that this is actually about um, uh, areas of disagreement with the U.S., that it's not really the Russians that are holding things up, it's that the Americans are still dragging their feet. Um, so, uh, you know, it's clear that um, the Iranians uh, can't go too far in, in poking the bear. I mean, Russia is, is a neighbor, it's a strategic ally, it's a country that it cooperates with in Syria in support of the Assad government. Um, at the same time, you, I, I imagine that they would not want to see, you know, their sanctions relief uh, uh, undermined by Russian demands, which Iran can't really control or benefit from necessarily. And they're uh, walking a fine line themselves. And again, at the moment, uh, what precipitated the apparent climb down, uh, whether it was the Russians concluding that they weren't going to get this, whether it was the Iranians nudging them, whether it was the Chinese that were nudging the Russians. There's a lot of dynamics here that um, aren't clear and may not be clear for some time. 
Um, but at the moment, I think really it comes back to, you know, Tehran and, and, and Washington ultimately being the, the primary decision makers in all of this, even despite the fact that they're not talking to one another, which is a very strange feature of this entire negotiation. I mean, where we've been, we've spent 11 months negotiating a path to a deal that's already been agreed between two central protagonists who don't talk to each other. And so those indirect talks, as you say, uh, Iran, the US not meeting, but Europeans mostly, but others also shuttling between them. As you said, over the past few months, they do seem to have made some progress. Could you sort of say, in this sort of basic equation of of Iran getting its nuclear program back into something like compliance with the original JCPOA and the US lifting sanctions. I mean, is it clear now what the kind of contours of that is going to look like? What are the points that are still outstanding? What are the main hurdles in in reaching agreement on 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 that now? Well, to start with the hurdles, we I think the main one right now, um, the, the main sticking point remains the uh, the extent of some of the U.S. sanctions that the Iranians uh, are still negotiating over, and, and, and the U.S. is still uh, debating internally. Um, that that that's one side. But I mean, in terms of the 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 broad um, contours of what we what we would expect. Um, you know, the there have been different reports on on uh, potential sequencing that, that that Iran would initially freeze uh, some of the most proliferation sensitive activity while the U.S. Uh, releases some assets, and then um, in turn Iran uh, gets waivers um, on uh, the oil sales and starts to bring down uh, its stockpiles and, and brings everything back into compliance. Um, the sequencing, there are a lot of ways to go about it. Ultimately, I think um, anything that comes out that's reported or speculative is subject to the actual terms of, of the text, which uh, we haven't seen um, and is still very much um, under debate. I mean, the Iranians have put a lot of emphasis on this notion of upfront verification, right? So they, they want to see money in their accounts before they do anything. Um, as far as the U.S. and the E3 are concerned, that's not going to fly because the, the non-proliferation steps have to be happening at least uh, in tandem or some of the most proliferation sensitive activities need to be at least frozen up front. Um, there's also a parallel set of issues um, which are not directly JCPOA related but are in the mix to all of this, which is the release of uh, U.S. detainees. That's another thing, obviously, obviously today. Uh, with the announcement of uh, the release of uh, two UK nationals. Um, that's obviously uh, been at the forefront of this, but there are a number of US cases as well. The US has said that they, um, they it, it's very difficult for them to imagine finalizing the JCPOA without those cases being resolved. That's something that may not necessarily be in the text of the agreement. The text of the agreement is going to be a, um, a a framework for restoring mutual compliance. Here are the steps that Iran needs to take in this sequence. Here's what the U.S. does uh, as a reciprocal measure in terms of uh, Iran's frozen assets, Iran's oil exports, um, the, the the lifting of particular sanctions over a particular period of time, and um, ultimately the, the 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 specifics of that um, will depend on whatever final text we end up uh, seeing. And Nathan, the the release of the two British hostages you mentioned, so Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and and, and Anusha Shuri, that's obviously amazing, uh, wonderful news in itself after after so long. 
um, it seems to be mostly bilateral diplomacy between the UK and Iran, right? But 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 should we see it as a good sign for the nuclear talks, or is that reading too much into it? Um, look, I'll start by saying that knowing um, how uh, how dedicated an effort there has been uh, in the UK government, how much uh, work there has been behind the scenes by governments like Oman. Uh, to make this happen, I can imagine that there is nothing but absolute uh, relief and and joy um, that uh, Nazanin and Anusha have been released. Nazanin's been detained in Iran since 2016. Uh, Anusha has been, uh, I think, uh, arrested in 2017. And there's a third UK national um, um, uh, that was uh, furloughed. Uh, and in return, the, 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 the UK resolved a, an outstanding debt payment to Iran. It's a wonderful thing in and of itself. Um, whether or not we can read too much into it, into the JCPOA negotiations, I'd be wary of, of injecting, uh, optimism, uh, over that. Um, we, we know that this is a process that's been going on for the past couple of months quite intensively. There was a British delegation in Tehran. Uh, this week to finalize these uh, arrangements. Um, certainly anything that's uh, done based on constructive diplomacy is a good thing that can feed into the JCPOA process. Um, my perpetual Cassandra always says that, you know, momentum very quickly falters when, when other things kick in. And Nathan, let's let's say that the US and Iran do manage to get back to the JCPOA, reach an agreement. Iran's nuclear program has come on leaps and bounds over the last few years. The breakout time is much, much shorter than it was. Its know-how is much, much better than it was. To what extent would it be accurate to describe that the deal that they come back to, even it's, if it's still the JCPOA, it's, you know, it's, it's not as good as the original? Is that the right way to look at it or is that, or is that misleading? I would say it's a lot better than where we are right now. Um, look, I, I think you're right that, um, when the deal was, was, uh, concluded in 2015, uh, Iran's highest levels of enrichment had been, uh, 20%. Uh, right now it's enriching at 60. Uh, right now it's enriching with more than 2,000 advanced centrifuges. Right now, uh, it has produced, uh, uranium metal, which is a particularly sensitive component that can be used in, in the, in the core of a, of a weapon. So essentially, since the US withdrawal, Iran has had three years of unchecked research and development, enrichment, um, and limited monitoring uh, as well. Um, now, that being said, um, there are a lot of very important restrictions um, that would come back into place, including the, the, the limits on Iran's uh, stockpiles and enrichment rates. Those would go into 2031. So if the deal is restored from where Iran is right now, which is enriching at 60%, which is very close to weapons grade, it would go back down below 4%. Instead of measuring um, the, the stockpiles in tons, we'd be back down to about 300 kilograms. And instead of measuring uh, breakout time in weeks, which is where we are right now, we'd be back into months. So relative to, to where we are, um, it's a vast improvement, especially once you restore the IAA's uh, real-time access. Um, but it is true that um, there are some elements of knowledge that Iran has accumulated over the past few years that cannot entirely be undone. Um, but uh, th th I think 
the, the framing that it's weaker than 2015, I think, has to account for the fact that this is, that there are consequences to letting a, a non-proliferation deal unravel for three years. And Nathan, there were, uh, even before the Ukraine war, there was kind of a lot of resistance to the Iran deal. I mean, there always has been a lot of resistance, obviously, in Washington, but sort of more resistance building. There was a group of, I think, uh, legislators from both sides of the House wrote to Biden, sort of warning against the deal. Do you think that the the sort of Ukraine war and the further animosity that's built toward Russia, do you think in any way that that's going to shape the difficulty that the Biden administration is going to face if it can get to a deal in, in Washington? Um, look, I think that the the administration, if if indeed we get to a deal, the argument that they would make is, uh, first of all, um, this is one crisis that's been successfully resolved through diplomacy in cooperation with our European allies. That would be the argument one. And the argument two is that um, the non-proliferation benefits are uh, significant, especially where relative to where Iran's nuclear program is. I mean, it really is approaching crisis point when Iran's breakout time is only a couple of weeks. Uh, but that being said, I think you're absolutely right that um, politically it will be uh, a very uh, bitter uh, battle. Um, it was a bitter battle in 2015. Um, it was a bitter battle over over maximum pressure, and it will be a bitter battle if we get to the point of restoration. The, the default position for many people in, in Washington, um, given um, the, the historical memory of Iran, given Iran's role in the region, um, th- there will be a sense that the only acceptable number of sanctions that should ever be lifted on Iran is zero. I think there are, um, you know, reasonable concerns over, over how uh, sanctions lifting can impact Iran's uh, regional posture, how it will affect U.S. allies in the region, how it can exacerbate rather than decrease some of the, the threats to U.S. interests um, in the Middle East. I think that that is a, a, a reasonable debate. One can also uh, counter that by looking at the track record of maximum pressure over the past couple of years that also exacerbated a lot of the tensions between Iran and the U.S., also exacerbated a lot of the tensions between Iran and um, some some of its regional neighbors. Um, so I, the political opposition um, will be uh, significant. Uh, I think that the administration's uh, counter will be that the, the non-proliferation imperative, um, the, the, the rebuilding of transatlantic relations on this key issue, um, and the potential that this provides a, a framework for discussions with Iran on other issues. That, that I think, will be their argument. Presumably, though, the last thing really that the U.S. would want at the moment would be, you know, an escalating crisis over Iran's nuclear development and pressure to act militarily to stop Iran's breakout time getting too short. Given how occupied the U.S. is, rightly, understandably, in in Europe, why would it want to open another front right now in the Middle East. Well, and and the option of uh, bombing Iranian nuclear facilities as a non-proliferation mechanism also in, in, in the shadow of Ukraine looks like a very bad idea because we've seen over the past few weeks that you don't want uh, nuclear uh, facilities being uh, being shelled. It's, it's not a good non-proliferation step. Um, and I think you're right. The argument that the administration would make, certainly that the Europeans w- w- would make as well, is that being mindful of um, the other range of concerns that um, uh, that Iran is is seen as posing, um, 
none of those become easier under the cloud of a nuclear crisis, right? So if, if your concern is that Iran has uh, constituted a threat towards commercial shipping over the past few years, if you're concerned that Iran supports partners and proxies in uh, Yemen or in Iraq or in Syria or in Lebanon, um, the, the question, I suppose, becomes, do any of them become easier to address when Iran is potentially weeks away from uh, having a breakout capacity? Um, and so, you know, it, it really is one of those issues where, you know, if Iran um, is able to field sufficient uh, fissile material for a weapon, um, you know, and you, and you see this kind of reflected in, in the comments of a, of a senior U.S. commander who was appearing at the Senate the other day, the number one concern is don't let Iran have a nuclear weapon. A lot of the other things are are problematic. Uh, they they have been problematic. They will continue to be problematic. But if you can at least um, uh, address this one overarching concern, um, it frees up space to address those those other ones, either through other forms of pressure, sanctions, leverage, uh, potentially through dialogue with regional partners. Um, but at least you you lay that one main uh, overarching concern to side for, for the time being. So let's end up, uh, uh, by coming back a little bit to, 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 to Russia. So, Nathan, let's say that the Russians' demands are more than the Europeans, the E3, and the US can accept. I mean, is there any way of getting back to something like the JCPOA, or is, is there any way that talks don't collapse if Russia doesn't want to move forward? Well, so first, you know, the talks can still collapse with or without the Russians. Uh, a lot of these things ultimately comes back to, to the Americans and the Iranians. But let's say for the sake of argument that the Iranians and, and the Americans are both on board, that the Russians uh, introduce new demands or that for, for whatever reason, uh, Moscow is uh, not a cooperative party going forward. Uh, I think really you have two options. Uh, one option is... Uh, to find a way of um, basically constructing the revival without the Russians directly on board. So you find an alternative recipient of Iran's uh, enriched fuel. You find an alternative um, uh, partner on the civil cooperation projects. And then you find a way of wording it where you don't need joint commission consensus. And um, the downside with this is that it would essentially require uh, the Iranians to work around one of their allies in this, right? So um, the Iranians would would have to go along with, with something that essentially freezes out um, a, a country that all things being equal, they, they would prefer not to freeze out if, 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 if it's not entirely necessary. And China might not agree as well, presumably. China may not agree. China's, you know, throughout these negotiations, uh, they've, they've obviously been engaged and by most accounts, you know, fairly constructive, you know, European officials I've, I've spoken to have, have said that, you know, hand in glove is the phrase that one, uh, used when it, when it came to the non-E3, uh, parties in these negotiations. And I think that that's, you know, not a small thing. The alternative option, um, if there aren't ways to lawyer around to the Joint Commission and technical ways of getting around the non-proliferation steps, would essentially to be, be to say, let's leave aside the JCPOA framework. Let's, let's leave aside the entire Vienna process, uh, and the text that's come about and just shift to a different paradigm, which is just, um, let's declare a moratorium somehow. Let's come up with an interim deal. And, uh, in that scenario, basically the Iranians would stop some of the most proliferation-sensitive activities, 
in return for the U.S. not giving uh, full sanctions relief, not even the sanctions relief that's on the table in the context of, of JCPOA, but some limited uh, sanctions relief, for example, on oil waivers, um, where you basically diffuse the immediate crisis and you buy time to find alternatives, right? So um, the, the upside of that is uh, that you would try to freeze enrichment, and the Iranians would be able to point to some economic dividends. Um, the question, though, is is whether the other parties involved in the negotiations would basically want their own role essentially phased out of this, because this would more, more or less be a U.S.-Iran understanding. So if, if, it, if indeed um, uh, the, the Russian uh, expectations uh, come back and, and, and turn out to be a non-starter. There is scope for creative diplomacy, either within a JCPOA framework or in an alternative framework to uh, find a different way of addressing it. But I think all things being equal, um, you know, trying to uh, restore the agreement as is uh, for the time being remains plan A. So, I mean, in you know, in some ways, this is the first big test of how much the Ukraine crisis is going to completely break multilateral diplomacy, because this is uh, a venue where the Russians and the Americans have been able to work together, uh, notwithstanding all the tensions between the, the, the two governments. Um, and it's something that, you know, the, in principle, the Russians have wanted, they have wanted to get back to the JCPOA. So in some ways, it is this big this big test of, of what the Ukraine crisis is going to mean for the ability of Russia and Western governments to, to, to work together. So, you know, if the Russians have indeed come back with a with the sanctions carve-outs that really just relate to the JCPOA, I mean, that would be an enormously positive sign in, in some ways, right? I mean, look, the, the, the 2014 precedent, but even at the time of Crimea, the Russians were intimating that perhaps they would try to undermine uh, the JCPOA negotiations um, at, at the time leading up to the JCPOA. Obviously, that was... That was when Russia annexed the Crimea Peninsula. That's right. While, while the Iran talks were ongoing. While the Iran talks were ongoing, yeah. And, and that, that was actually, I think, in March as well, March, March of uh, 2014. They didn't um, try to torpedo the talks at the time. Um, and right now, again, again you know, the, for the Russians, there are um, contending interests here. Uh, if, if they are able to manage some degree of compartmentalized cooperation, uh, not just with the Americans. I mean, the, the Europeans are also deeply engaged in the JCPOA negotiations. I mean, you have uh, the British, German and French governments that have, that have done uh, a Put in a lot of uh, time and effort over the past few years to forestall the deal's total collapse. You know, after the Trump administration left, it was really down to the E3 um, and and the Russians and the Chinese to keep the agreement on on uh, life support. And now there is uh, certainly a much deeper chasm between um, the West, uh, you know, writ large, but, but particularly the, the European Union and, and Washington, uh, and the Russians. So uh, up until a few days ago, it looked as though, um, the, the Vienna talks, the JCPOA process would be, uh, one of the first main instances of diplomatic collateral damage, uh, from Ukraine. Um, now it looks, Equally, as though it may be one of the first opportunities for um, continued pragmatic engagement by all of the sides here, 
um, um, to, to, to come up with solutions that actually benefit all of them in one way or another. Um, but again, you know, the, the, the trend line of these negotiations over the past few weeks has been that once you address one thing, another thing immediately comes up. So, you know, the, the, the French negotiator, if I'm not mistaken, a few weeks ago, tweeted uh, an image um, uh, of, of the front page of the text of the agreement. And it was um, the, the top and bottom of the page were, were covered. But what you could see was was a title and then a qualifier above it that said uh, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. That's been the mantra throughout these negotiations. But certainly, I think you're right that if, if there is uh, scope to maintain some degree of unity, um, that may be overstating the point, but certainly a degree of alignment um, on this one issue, uh, it may mean that multilateral, multilateralism isn't entirely dead yet. Nathan, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We'll turn to Venezuela in a moment, but before we do, I'd like to give a big shout out to another podcast. Uh, it's produced by our friends at the Oslo Forum and the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue. It's called The Mediator Studio. Uh, Adam Cooper hosts, and season three has been out over the past few weeks. Guests include veteran diplomat Lakta Brahimi, a giant of UN diplomacy, Haile Menkerios, and the activist Muna Lukman talking about the reality of war in Yemen. It's really a great way to get a sense of what goes on behind the scenes of some of the world's most sensitive peace negotiations. So please do check that out. So let's turn now then to Venezuela, uh, and I'm very happy to be joined by my colleague, Phil Gunson, who's Crisis Group's Venezuela expert. He's calling in from Caracas. Phil, welcome back on. You're very welcome. So, Phil, why don't you start by just sort of give us a rundown of this latest trip by U.S. diplomats to meet Venezuelan officials. What has actually happened? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, really. Um, on the, the weekend of the 5th and 6th of March, um, a delegation came down from the US, which really was the highest ranking delegation for some time, for many years. And of course, it comes in the middle of a freeze on relations. I mean, the US and Venezuela don't have diplomatic relations. Washington recognizes the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, as the president of Venezuela. So it's quite surprising to find representatives of the White House, representatives of the State Department, um, meeting with President Maduro. Um, what we understood from sources in advance of that meeting was that it was going to be focused primarily on U.S. prisoners. There are U.S. prisoners in Venezuelan jails whom the U.S. is obviously very concerned about. And there had already been contacts with the hostage negotiator, uh, Roger Carstens, um, to see if those prisoners could be released. So that was what we were expecting. But in, in effect, what we got was something rather more wide ranging than that. And, and the exact dimensions of this, what appeared perhaps to be a breakthrough in US-Venezuelan relations, are still being worked out. It's very much a moving target at the moment. But that's essentially what happened. There was a, there was a, a meeting, that, there were several meetings, in fact, over that weekend, and, and the consequences are still being worked out. And so we'll talk about some of the things that appear to have been discussed during those meetings in a moment. But can you just tell us, that, so if, if the US is now meeting senior Venezuelan officials from the Maduro government, what does that mean for its recognition of opposition leader Juan Guaido as the legitimate president in, in the US's eyes of Venezuela? 
Well, according to the official line coming out of Washington, it doesn't mean any change at all. I mean, they insist that they continue to recognize Juan Guaido as the acting president of Venezuela, uh, that they don't recognize Maduro. But of course, um, the government here is pointing out that uh, if uh, if you come and meet with the president and you seek a deal with the president, the sitting incumbent president actually in the presidential palace, um, on, on whatever it happens to be. And one of the members of that delegation, indeed, is the US ambassador who is, technically speaking, accredited to Guaido, then that looks pretty much like recognition, even if it's only de facto recognition. Um, it seems to have seriously undermined the position um, of that uh, opposition leadership under, under Juan Guaido, um, who appear to have been largely left out of, out of the loop on this. Might not be a bad thing, given that the recognition of uh, Guaido by the US it was a policy that obviously started under Trump, but it seems to have run its course in any case, right? Well, that's right. This is these are the policy towards Venezuela. Of course, was was initiated basically in all all its main aspects under Donald Trump in in two thousand and nineteen, starting with the recognition of Juan Guaido, a whole slew of, of really very fierce sanctions on the oil industry, uh, cutting Venezuela off from from the U.S. financial system, in, um, placing a ban on U.S. citizens or, or, or corporations having any dealings with any part of the Venezuelan administration. And of course, ultimately, extending that to third parties who, who, who deal with Venezuela. That's what Biden inherited. And it's not functioning. I mean, it's a dysfunctional policy. And the reason why the Biden administration, which I think has serious reservations about this policy, it's faced with the difficulty that to reverse the recognition, to lift sanctions, causes a significant uh, pushback on the part of the Venezuela lobby in the United States, which includes some powerful members of Congress, actually on both sides of the aisle. So that's what's been holding things up. And certainly when we saw this delegation um, arrive in, in Venezuela for these talks, it did seem as if perhaps that roadblock might have been at least partially lifted. And so one of the things they talked about was uh, oil, right? I mean, in, presumably in part to offset the loss of or the potential sanctions on Russian oil onto global markets. Do you have a sense at all of what the US is hoping to get in terms of getting more Venezuelan oil onto the markets, which I understand is quite difficult? Yes. I mean, again, the Washington's been very coy about this. They have they have presumably because of the backlash on, 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 from the Venezuela lobby in the States, they have been trying to backtrack on this and say, no, no, oil wasn't really at the heart of it. But it does seem that the Ukraine war, its impact on the global oil market, the decision to uh, stop importing Russian oil uh, to the United States was really what triggered this move. They say that it had been in the, in the works for some time, but I think what really um, precipitated the arrival of the delegation here and the talks was oil. Now, it's not that Venezuela, in the best of circumstances, could do much about the price of gasoline at the pump in, in the United States, which clearly is a major political concern for Biden heading into the midterm um, congressional elections in November. Um, but at the same time, there are refineries, um, particularly in the south of the United States, which are set up specifically to deal with the, the kind of oil that Venezuela produces and that have had to source it from elsewhere, including from Russia, um, during this period in which Venezuelan oil has been has been subject to sanctions. So clearly, Venezuela, if the US at this point is needing, as it obviously is, to diversify its oil supply, then Venezuela is one 
place that they would definitely look. Venezuela has the largest oil reserve, certainly in the Western Hemisphere, they claim even in the world. But the difficulty, as you say, is how to um, start that oil really flowing again um, because the oil industry is in dire straits, not just because of sanctions, but because of you know dec- a couple of decades of mismanagement and corruption and so on. It's producing a fraction of what it used to produce. And in the best of circumstances, we're only talking about maybe a couple of hundred thousand barrels um, additional per day um, to, to, to what the US is receiving. Um, so there is that limitation there. And so one of the things that I assume that the Maduro government wants is sanctions relief, lifting some of the sanctions, uh, repair an economy that's been decimated in large part by mismanagement, but also uh, sanctions have contributed to that. What parts of the Venezuelan opposition want, some sort of political settlement that leads to a credible election in which they at least stand a chance of competing on a level playing field. So we'll come in a moment to sort of prospects for either of those happening and whether this small opening provides some sort of opportunity to get there. But before we do that, Phil, could we just sort of back up and talk about Russia's relations with Venezuela over the past decade or so? Because Moscow has been one of the big supporters of the Maduro government as it's become more isolated from Western powers and from uh, Latin American governments. Indeed, yeah. Russia and Venezuela historically haven't had much of a relationship at all. But when Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999 and began this process of realigning Venezuela um, away from the US sphere of influence, talking about a multipolar world, seeking relations both commercial and political elsewhere in the world, of course, Russia and and China as well and, and other lesser powers um, came into focus here. We we started to see, um, for example, um, significant uh, arms transfers from Russia to Venezuela, billions of dollars. In the days when Venezuela was making a huge amount of money during the oil boom under Chavez, we got lots of weapons. We got we got uh, you know very expensive um, uh, systems, weapon systems here, including a couple of dozen um, Sukhoi uh, military jets. I think it's something like four billion uh, over the past couple of decades, right? Yeah, yeah, four billion. I mean, there are, there are different figures because it's not very transparent. But but four billion is a, a sort of a ballpark figure, an awful lot of money. Um, and of course, with that comes a bigger relationship with Russia, even if it's only to begin with, in the sense of Russian technicians, uh, you know, the whole package that comes with um, with a, a weapons platform where you need some kind of maintenance and, and, and instruction and so on. All that sort of stuff. But of course, Venezuela and Russia started to vote alongside each other, vote together in international forums. This is very, um, you know, handy for, for both of them. Um, Russia, um, did provide, uh, some loans and credits. Um, it developed an interest in the energy sector in Venezuela. Russia has, um, concessions and was seeking more concessions in, in oil and gas. Uh, and latterly under sanctions, um, Russia, which of course is also sanctioned and knows a bit about how to evade sanctions, um, as well as countries like Iran, for example, have been helping Venezuela to evade sanctions. So this is part of the problem now that Russia is becoming so isolated that Venezuela had to some extent started to rely on uh, financial systems set up in partnership with the Russians. And that's really not so convenient anymore, to say the least. And Phil, Venezuela in the past, I think, is one of the very few countries to recognise the independence of uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia regions that, that broke away with Russian support from Georgia. 
some years ago. But how has Caracas responded to Russia's invasion of, of, of Ukraine? Well, before the invasion actually happened, um, there was very strong support for Putin, as you, as you would expect. I mean, Maduro um, and, uh, says that the relationship with Russia is, is, is a, you know, a, a, a strategic partnership. Um, the Russians have reciprocated, at least um, verbally. Um, it's very convenient for Russia to some extent, Russia sees its allies in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua in particular, as a kind of mirror image that Ukraine and Venezuela um, have been seen on occasions as kind of equivalents. Like it, the Russians say, well, you know, um, you should, uh, you know, if you really want us out of Venezuela, which the US certainly under Trump said quite explicitly that it did, then you should get out of Ukraine. When Russia began the the invasion and recognized the supposedly independent republics um, in the east of Ukraine, um, Venezuela refrained from recognizing them in the way it did with Abkhaz, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And that for some was a was an indication that Maduro was thinking maybe we need to be a little bit cautious on this. Um, Venezuela didn't vote in the UN General Assembly, the special General Assembly hold, held to to debate the the war in Ukraine. Uh, But that's because it couldn't vote. It it wasn't able to because it hasn't paid its dues. That may have been a relief to Caracas to not have to be quite so explicit. But certainly, I mean, there've been visits, there've been mutual visits. Um, The Venezuelan vice president was in Turkey meeting uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov um, just recently. That was after the US delegation visited Caracas. So there's, you know, there's no sense yet, uh, certainly, that Maduro has any intention of, of of, of cutting loose from the from the Russian sphere of influence. And so one of the difficulties of the political crisis in Venezuela over the past few years, the main difficulty has obviously been that uh, the government refuses to compromise. Uh, but, uh, but another difficulty uh, refuses to contemplate a genuine election that would risk it giving up power. But one of the other problems has been that the opposition's divided, as we talked about earlier. The international strategy of recognizing Juan Guaido as the legitimate president has sort of run its course, and and, and that no longer, no longer really makes sense. Um, and they've well, there have been talks recently in Mexico City. There have been talks for the past couple of years, but those broke off and then recently restarted again in Mexico City. They were cancelled, I think, because the. U.S. extradited a Maduro ally from from Africa, and uh, so the Venezuelan government pulled out of those talks. Now, how do you think uh, sort of Im- improved relations, or at least more open relations between the U.S. and Caracas, could contribute to that? Well, after the U.S. delegation visited, um, Maduro said specifically that he was ready to resume negotiations. He didn't talk specifically about going back to Mexico City. That's a particular format um, facilitated by the government of Norway, uh, which is subject to a memorandum of understanding that was signed in August of last year. And there are talks between the Maduro government and what the opposition calls the unitary platform, which is essentially that part of the opposition that responds to, to Juan Guaido. Um, now, there are other oppositions, as the government never tires of, of telling us in, in Venezuela, and they are not involved in those talks. But they have been involved in other talks with the government here domestically. But it does seem that uh, Maduro's statements that he was prepared to go back to talks, that seems to have come from something that he discussed with the Americans. 
Yes, and here's where we have to be a bit cautious because we, we you know, we're, we're speculating here. We assume, for example, that some kind of back channel must have been established after that meeting in order for the two sides to communicate on, on the, you know, whether or not they were fulfilling what they maybe agreed at that meeting. Maybe there were no agreements. In fact, there were two prisoners released as a result of that, um, but very little else has happened. Today, um, the government is talking about restarting a dialogue with the, as it calls it, the oppositions inside Venezuela, but it's not yet talking about directly about going back to Mexico City. Um, but it, yes, indeed, it does seem that 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 the the announcement that that some sort of talks would restart has been triggered by that U.S. by by that U.S. visit. Yeah, I assume, Phil, that the sort of most likely scenario is one in which not much changes. But if, if you could just sort of for a minute imagine a better scenario, what would that look like in terms of getting back to talks, but also in terms of the way that the US could use its influence, could use prospects for sanctions relief to sort of create incentives for the Maduro government in particular, but also the opposition to kind of move in the right direction? Yeah, well, what we've been saying for some time is that, first of all, this is not a situation, the Venezuelan political crisis is not a situation that can be resolved entirely domestically, that there have to be, there has to be at least an agreement not to sabotage any, 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 um, any settlement on the part of the uh, powerful external allies of both sides. So they must somehow be aligned. And in that sense, of course, the crisis over Ukraine is very bad news, because it means that it's very difficult to imagine that the US and Russia can agree on anything. And, and Russia might have every incentive to sabotage what the US is trying to do in Venezuela, if indeed it has the capacity to do that. But leaving that aside for a moment, I mean, what, what we have said is that the logical sequence of events, given that what Maduro wants out of any negotiation is fundamentally in the gift of the United States and not in the gift of the local opposition, that the US needs to agree a deal with Maduro directly or via you know, people in the opposition that it regards as valid interlocutors, a deal whereby sanctions would be gradually lifted in return for steps towards the holding of free and fair elections and other issues concerning institutional rule in Venezuela. And it, that's why it seemed that this might be a breakthrough on that front, because, as I said before, the, the main obstacle to that seemed to be that there was no way that the Venezuela lobby in the United States, including the representatives of the so-called interim government, would accept any kind of lifting of sanctions unless there was a, a firm, irreversible deal on a free and fair election very soon, and at the very latest in, in 2024. Um, and that doesn't seem to be very practical. On the other hand, of course, you also have to bear in mind that the opposition within Venezuela, which is, of course, where it ought to be and where it ought to be presenting alternatives to the government, um, is so fragmented and so bereft of leadership that it seems that in order to get any kind of deal that would really result in a political settlement, in order to get there, you have to have a stronger opposition. You need, you know, an opposition that is that is well-led, that, that has firm, you know, structures of, of decision-making and that is united. And none of those things are happening at the moment. So that really is another drag on any kind of progress. And Phil, could you just say a word or two about China, which also has uh, pretty good relations to the Maduro government? Its sign-off on any sort of agreement will also likely be sort of a prerequisite. Do we have any sense of sort of how it might view sort of a, a, an evolving geopolitics that sees 
Maduro's relationship with Western governments change? Yes, the the case of China is, I think, um, different from that of Russia in in a number of key ways. I mean, of course, um, Russia is not um, a massive economic power, but China is, and China's um, relationship with with Venezuela has been, although it has sold arms, certainly its relationship with Venezuela and with the region as a whole um, is much more driven by economic and commercial. Uh, considerations and and co- considerations of investment. Venezuela owes about eighteen billion dollars to China. And that's that's even for China. That's not exactly small change. So they need to find a way to recover that debt, and it's not going to be recovered um, with a collapsed economy as as we have at the moment. Um, they also have you know energy considerations. China's a, 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 unlike Russia again, which is a an oil producer. China is a massive um, energy consumer and needs Venezuela in that regard. One could argue that, um, and I think it is the case, in fact, that that China's interests are much better served by a transition to a more normal situation in Venezuela, um, including clearly a much improved relationship with the United States that would allow the economy to recover. But um, but of course, geopolitics comes into this, and the Chinese have not been very clear so far about exactly where they're going to end up um, over this over this issue with with Russia and, and the Ukraine war. Um, I think the Chinese, you know, have to be part of the solution. I don't think that if a if a workable solution is is devised and is being implemented, I don't think the Chinese are going to sabotage that, um, as as perhaps the Russians might. Um, and I do think that China has a major role to play in the reconstruction of Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela hasn't had a war, but it's almost as if it had because the infrastructure is so badly deteriorated and the economy is in such bad shape. Chinese capital is going to be important. So, Phil, it seems a bit of a kind of a mixed picture in that the Ukraine war appears to have prompted this sort of renewed U.S. diplomacy in Venezuela, which in itself could be you know, still very early days, but could potentially be, be be a good thing. I mean, could could potentially open space for for renewed peace talks. But as you say, that the fundamental is that the sort of collapse in relations between Russia and the West is likely to make a political settlement all the more difficult because in the end, Russia and China together could basically veto any any sort of agreement in Venezuela if they really chose to, probably. Um, so the fundamentals may be more may be more complicated because of Ukraine, despite this sort of initial uh, positive diplomacy. But if you think of the Venezuela crisis as, I mean, at its core, obviously there's a lot of different elements to it, but at its core, the crisis is driven by the fact that, you know, under Hugo Chavez, you know, for all his flaws, you know, there's no doubt that the government enjoyed quite a bit of support, likely majority support. But Maduro's support is nothing like that. And and the core of the crisis is that, you know, the government now in Venezuela has probably doesn't enjoy majority support, but it has no intention of relinquishing power. Very averse to risking an election that's credible, partly because it doesn't want to lose power and partly because some of the top figures in government fear what might happen to them if that happens. So that's sort of the core of the crisis. If you look at it in those terms, I mean, do you see the Ukraine war? Is it really sort of over-optimistic to, to see any, you know, the the, the the potential that this could open space for, for, for resolving what has proven a very, very intractable crisis? Yeah, I, I'm not very optimistic, I have to say. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's true to say that an isolated, impoverished Russia 
is not going to be much use as an ally to Venezuela. And and so I think, the, you know, the Maduro government has to be realistic. We may be looking at a fundamental shift in geopolitics to the, but perhaps, I mean, not to the extent of going back to the Cold War, but, but it's, it's a lot harder, I think, to imagine, um, you know, a, a, a government like that of, um, Maduro or, say, uh, Daniel Ortega in, in Nicaragua, um, being able to, um, if you like, thumb their nose quite so, quite so gaily at, at the United States as they could, um, you know, prior to the, to the, to the, Ukraine war, although of course there is still the China fact. Um, where I'm particularly pessimistic is, um, on the one hand, uh, as I said before, the you know the Venezuelan opposition is in is in very poor shape, and if you're going to have you know a, a functioning transition to some kind of more um, more open political system and and the recovery of of, of of international relations and and trade and so on, then you really need you know, you need opposition leadership and you need functioning opposition parties and so on. Um, but again, on the, the, the other pessimistic part, I think, is that my sense at the moment is that whatever the US thought it was doing with this delegation in, in early March, whatever the motivation precisely and what they intended to do with that, um, they didn't come out of it very, very well. And there seems at the moment to be a kind of retrenchment. They maybe um, got a little scared having seen the backlash that there was um, having seen the difficulties that there are, because it's very hard to square all these different elements that you, you know, on the one hand, you're trying to satisfy the oil lobby in the United States that wants to get back into Venezuela, you know, wants to recover lost money, wants to start pumping oil again. Um, the bondholders, for example, the debt's all frozen. They can't, they can't renegotiate the debt. Um, and at the same time, you've got to keep people happy in Congress who are uh, who are saying that no deal can be done with the dictator Maduro. And with all the other stuff that the Biden administration has on its plate, it may just be too optimistic to imagine um, that even if there is some kind of thaw on the oil front, on the energy front, um, that this is going to lead to a functional settlement of the overall political crisis. So right now I'm I'm not particularly optimistic. We're waiting for developments, but that's where, the way I see it right now. Especially, of course, I mean, we, we just had a conversation about the Iran nuclear deal, but if, if the US does go back into the Iran nuclear deal, plus if it has to accept some sort of ugly compromise in Ukraine, the appetite for what uh, Venezuela hawks in the US will see as, you know, a sellout to, as you say, the Maduro dictatorship. You know, appetite for that is going to be pretty slim, presumably. I think that's right. And of course, we're in an election cycle in the US, as we almost always are. Um, and these things are used as talking points in, you know, particularly when it comes to Venezuela, particularly in South Florida, which is, as we know, you know, a, a, you know, always, a, you know, Florida is always a swing state. Florida is always a, a, a you know, battleground um, between Republicans and Democrats. And, um, and unfortunately, Venezuela politics, like Cuba politics for so long, is a hostage to these internal um, struggles in the US, which which don't really have a lot to do with what's going on here on the in, on the ground. Phil, thanks so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. As ever, you can find all of our work, including our work on the Ukraine war and its fallout across the world, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson and Kabas al-Musawi. And thanks, of course, to all of you 
all our listeners. Please do get in touch with any suggestions or comments. You can write to us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you enjoy the show, leave us a positive rating or review. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.